Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Last Dance After Show. I'm Sam Fragoso, and joining me as he does each and every week is the one and only David Villar. How are we doing? I am doing exquisitely right now, and yourself, Sam. So it's Thursday. We're recording this Thursday morning. On most Thursdays, we would be playing our Thursday afternoon basketball game. Yeah. Yeah, that really hurts. Doesn't exist. Does not exist. And what's even more tragic about it, well, tragic might be a strong word, but what's even more sad about it is that we don't really know when that's ever going to happen again. It will happen again, but, you know, when, which might be a very long time. What do you miss most about playing? Uh, the fellowship. Uh, no, um, I really enjoy. I really thought you were going to stick with that answer. <laughs> and if you did, I, if you did, this, this podcast was going to get cut yeah. short. Oh, how little you know me. I don't know. I mean, I love competition. I love it all. I mean, I do love just the, everybody in the league is awesome and really enjoyable to play ball with. But as I feel like a sloth over here, um, just kind of expanding slothily so because I've never been that big of a runner and now I'm kind of forced to do that. I, you know, I need an activity like a game of some sort right. to do. That's kind of that basic aspect of just moving while getting my heart rate up is something I miss mm. ever so dearly. How about you? I miss uh, every Thursday just torching you week <laughs> after week. <laughs> no, I actually, I will say, because um, some folks have written me, mm-hmm about the podcast. Uh, if you have not listened to the A side of episodes three and four, uh, we sat with Davey Rothbart and Brian Moses. And we get into it. We get into it and we get into uh, both the Last Dance uh, docuseries and our weekly basketball games. But but something we didn't bring up is that you are one of the biggest nuisance on defense. I, I cannot stand having you guard me. And I'll add, you always guard me, no matter what. You will, even if you're on my team, I think you end up guarding well, me. Well, yeah, I mean, look, that is somewhat my calling card. I mean, I don't want to be pitching old here because I think I've got a, a pretty wet jumper. You do. It's nice. Uh, I don't take it to the hole as often as I used to. I think that just comes with age. Out of fear. It, yeah, fear. Fear of like going up and twisting my ankle or, you know, going up and coming down on somebody's foot. That being said, I do consider myself a. Uh, a younger Dennis Rodman type, uh, Scotty Pippen, mm-hmm. almost like a perfect marriage between the two. Do you love or hate guarding me? I enjoy guarding you. I, I really enjoy, I mean, the only thing that sucks is that you've got a consistent motor, so you don't necessarily tire easy, so there's no plays taken off, but that's the whole point of getting out there and exercising, but it's always a good time, and because I think I do a, such a solid job on defense on you, your frustration when I shut you down, <laughs> and, and I have shut you down. I mean, make no bones about it. This isn't hyperbole, people. I'm not going to say every game, it's but, true. you know, there's times where you've gone over, I believe, um, or like one for one for a lot. And, you know, I, I come out of that game, and I'm just like, mission accomplished, Villar. Mission accomplished. Yeah, I have had uh, more of those games mm-hmm. than I'd like to have had. But um, I think it's an even matchup, which, again, I don't know when we're going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, we do have this podcast. We do have this podcast, but, you know, and, and I, I don't want to just completely sound like an arrogant prick over here, but let it be known, people. San Fragoso's got game. He has got game. He's got an unorthodox <laughs> shot, but it's not an unorthodox shot that he can't get off quickly. It's kind of like a Tim Hardaway-ish. 
uh, knuckleballer type thing going on, uh-huh. but it's effective. You know what I mean? So I'm good around the rim. Oh yeah. Well, you got a you got a nice outside game too. Let's not don't cut yourself short. I I think I'm pretty streaky. I I think like when it's going down, it's like Dion Waiters. Mm-hmm. He checks constantly, right. but most of the time I, I don't love the shot. But I will say in the meantime. We do have this podcast. It is brought to you this week by the good people at Feeding America. David's going to take it over from there. Absolutely. I think that what Feeding America is doing is, is wonderful, especially in these times and trying to keep people fed. Hunger is a real deal. And uh, this pandemic and the consequences from it have been very real. Anything you can donate would be greatly appreciated. You can do that at www.feedingamerica.org. You can find out more about them. Uh, on their site and at our show notes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. We also have a website where you can learn more at thelastdanceaftershow.captivate.fm. Again, any contribution you can make to the people at Feeding America really will go a long way, and uh, we appreciate it here on the show. Uh, This week is Adam McKay. Adam's directed a lot of goddamn movies, hasn't he? It's staggering the amount and also not just prolific, but quality as well. Quality. Stone Cold classics in Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, Oscar nominated for The Big Short, Oscar winner for The Big Short, and Oscar nominated for Vice. He uh, has made many films. A lot of them are really excellent and really knows his basketball. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Knows his basketball, but also has a great history and stories to go along with it as you'll listen. It's really fun. Yeah, it was really fun. So why don't we just get into it? Should we call him up? Let's proceed to do that, Sam. All right. Here's Adam McKay. Hey, Sam. Hey, David. Hey, Adam. Adam. Oh, my God. How are you guys? Oh, you know, in, in, in these quarantine days, thank God for some basketball. How are you holding up? I'm good. I agree, too. That, uh, that documentary series, oh, that in the NFL draft, I just drank, like, <laughs> chugged, like, ice-cold water in Arizona. Uh, it was, yeah, that was needed. Mm-hmm. How have you been uh, been managing these last uh, few weeks? Yeah, I think the first five weeks I was pretty fine because it's just like kind of felt like hunker down kind of snow day mentality of like, you know, we can't leave. It was also so strange that, you know, you kind of hung with it. But the last week and a half, I feel like got kind of rough. Like, right. all right, mm-hmm. I'm going a little crazy. Uh and started to feel itchy and like, and also watching our, you know, I keep saying it's a double whammy. It's not just the pandemic. We're watching our federal government collapse in front of us. Right. And so sort of that double whammy started to get to me a little bit. But uh, how are you guys doing? I really think it's it's like the stages of grief in some way. And like, I, I think in the beginning there was some denial. Then there's some yep. acceptance. Yeah. And then uh, I have also noticed in the last like seven to ten days, people have been like fucking losing it. Like yeah. they, yep. the the whole like maybe we'll come back in summer. I think that idea, if you're a thinking person, I think you know like that's probably not happening. And I just people are going off the rails right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, normally when, when some of these things happen, and this doesn't happen for us out here in in Los Angeles, but, you know, when you have hurricanes and stuff like that, there's this kind of normal uh, time frame uh, that, that, you know, transpires in terms of the disaster, and then there's, like, the recovery, and we're kind of at the point where the recovery would be happening, yep. and we just have this indefinite, you know, void. Yeah, it's just an ellipsis. This ain't going away in the summer, and it ain't going away in the fall, and maybe it goes away in the winter. Maybe someone comes up with a vaccine or, you know, something. But that that's incredibly optimistic. I mean, if you're looking for the fall to kind of be, or winter to be the time when the vaccine comes out, that's still way on the optimistic side. So, yeah, we're wearing, we're wearing masks. We're staying 10 feet away. We're wearing gloves. Everyone's spraying everything down. But I do think we're not going to stay in our house. Like, I think it, psychologically, it felt like the, 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 what is it, the little timer popped out of the, the turkey. Right. Um, <laughs> like, just in the last week, I've had a lot of friends who were like, all right, I don't know if I can fucking do this anymore. You know? I'm so curious about what you see as not just a filmmaker of sports films, which you've done a, a few of, but just as a filmmaker, where do you see the film industry going at this point? Well, I'm a big believer that like the foundation of us being communal animals means there will always be movie theaters in some form or another. Like, so I'm not a believer that it's going to go away. And I, I do think obviously streaming is a thing. I think it can chip away at it. I think it can even, you know, reduce it. But like live music never went away. And I remember everyone's right. like, oh, downloads, records are gone, CDs are gone. You could just hear music whenever you want. It's like, no, people still like getting together and going to sports. They like music. They like movies. They like theater. The biggest success you can have in all of commercial entertainment is still a Broadway musical. That's still the thing that makes the most amount of money and runs the longest and has the biggest impact. And that's probably the most old fashioned of all the mediums. So, so yeah, there's kind of two stages. How do we deal with the next year or two of, of this, uh, virus floating around? That's one question, but the long-term kind of effect of it, I, I don't think the movie theater thing goes away. Almost as a form of therapy, why don't we try to think about the past a little bit here? <laughs> <laughs> just, just, I, I, I've, I've been joking. It's like, who can afford therapy right now? Obviously, uh, some folks can, but many cannot. And I think this documentary has served as some bit of weekly respite. Um, for you, Adam, let's go back uh, in time. What did Jordan mean to you in the early 80s as it gets drafted? I know you spent some time in Chicago, late 80s, early 90s. Well, you know, first, just to speak on the idea of nostalgia, I've never been a guy to like listen to oldies music, to go dig through my old records. I'm not in any way. Well, I mean, we all are in some way because you bump into nostalgia. You'll hear a song on the radio and be like, oh, my gosh, so you can't avoid it. But during this quarantine, I've gotten 50 times more nostalgic than I ever have. I've been like listening to old pavement. I've been listening to old Sonic Youth. Nice. I've been looking at old basketball games. I, the Beastie Boys documentary came out, like the Spike Jones thing, like all the stuff. Like I'm going through YouTube, and like old Letterman music performances. Like I was watching Moe's Def on Letterman. 
making my 15 year old daughter watch it like <laughs> some old man showing his kid Benny Goodman or something. And that most deaf is your Benny Goodman is so great. <laughs> So I've gotten crazily nostalgic, and in the middle of all of this drops The Last Dance. And, I mean, it's hard to describe. Like, So I graduated high school in 86, and around 82, 83, my friends and I, we all lived outside Philly. All, like, hip-hop broke, you know? It was like, for the, like Run DMC came along. It was like, I've never seen anything like this. Like, eventually Public Enemy, like, Curtis Blow was kind of the first guy we started getting those records and right when hip hop was breaking in the early 80s, the NBA broke because you had Magic and Bird obviously came into the league and, and Dr. J and it started transforming it. And all of a sudden cable TV started hitting and there's just this incredible moment where we were just all in on hoops. And my buddies and I were just that, you know, the double header on TNT was just like, forget it, the greatest thing in the world. And we would VHS tape the basketball games, because still you didn't have full cable, so there still weren't all the games available. So we would tape the doubleheader on TNT or the game on TNT. I even wonder if it was a doubleheader back then. Mm -hmm. And we would watch the games over and over again and like do the moves of the players that you saw and like repeat quotes from certain players. And um, yeah, so the NBA just couldn't have been any bigger. And in the middle of it dropped Michael Jordan. And there's no internet, once again, sounding like an old man talking about Benny Goodman. There's no internet. So you just like catch a snippet in like Sports Illustrated where they're like, there's good talk about this Michael Jordan draft pick out of Chicago. And uh, and then we watched that Celtics playoff game where he put, what was it, 61 on the Celtics or 63? I can't remember the exact 63. amount. 63. And I was a Celtics fan at the time. I'm not so much anymore. And my fr we were just like three my buddy rick uh rick march and chuck perry chuck perry was the point guard on our basketball team my buddy rick was a football player i was like a bench warmer on the basketball team but all we did was play basketball <laughs> and that 63 point game we just it was like a the the earth shook underneath us you're you're about six five right were you any good you know, I was all right. I didn't start playing until later, and I had a hip injury, which is why I stopped playing football and other sports. So, uh, yeah, there were like about three years where if you saw me in a pickup game, you'd be like, that guy's okay. But no, I'm never great or anything. <laughs> Just love playing. Amazing. Yeah, I, I never – I didn't play organized ball really till my senior year. It just never had been the sport for me. And then when I caught on it, that's all I did. And so, you know, I played intramural in college, always was playing pickup three times a week. Like um, my crazy – like my sweaty little pathetic pickup, you know, game rush with glory was my buddy and I were playing around outside Philly in a pickup court. And uh, there's a guy down on the other end who's like around 6'2", clearly really athletic with this really beautiful woman, and they're shooting around. And the beautiful woman comes over and goes, do you want to play two-on-two -two with me and my boyfriend? And so my buddy uh, gets the girlfriend, covers her, and I cover the guy who's really athletic, and he's really good. And It's actually like a hard-fought game, and his, his beautiful girlfriend can play too, and we beat him by like one point. I was hitting some nice shots, and the guy's like, you're pretty good, man. You play college ball? And I'm like, nah, not really. Just pick up. And I was like, but you're really good. Who are you? And it was Jimmy Black. It was uh, Michael Jordan's backcourt mate from North oh Carolina. Yeah. We were like high off that for like three weeks, you know. 
Meanwhile, we could barely we could barely beat him and his girl his girlfriend in a game of two on two. <laughs> two completely healthy nineteen twenty year olds. We could barely beat them. I love the idea of playing ball with your girlfriend. Like that's like, what do you want to do tonight, sweetie? Let's go out and break off fools on the playground. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's just wonderful. Yeah, she le- she looked like a model or something too, and she clearly had played some high school ball because she could play. And uh, yeah, that was that was their afternoon. Incredible. So wait, so you, you said you're a Celtics fan. You grew up outside of Philly. Are you not a, you're not a Sixers fan? So I lived in Worcester, Massachusetts till I moved in fourth grade. So I inherited the Red Sox and the Celtics. And then I was in college going through my radical young man phase. And I started learning about the racist history of Boston. (laughs) And I learned that the curse of the Bambino, that the curse of Babe Ruth was BS, that it was actually, no, Thomas Yawkey, the team owner, was incredibly racist. And he was the last American League team to integrate, to have an African-American player on. And that's why they threw away 20 years where they could have been winning World Series. And that's the real curse of the Bambino. And then I read interviews with Bill Russell, who was like talking about how racist they were in Boston. So I was like, screw Boston. And I flipped off and became a, uh, who did I go to? I think I went to the Knicks, which that hasn't worked out well. Oh my now, God. of course, uh, you know, I, we obviously Boston's changed. It's completely different. But still, once you jump off it, you don't get back on it. I'm curious because I, I know you've been entrenched in making that forthcoming uh, Lakers show of yours. So, so you have been, I imagine, thinking about Magic Johnson, thinking about greatness and all its complexities. The last episode from this Sunday, this past Sunday, really dove into the 91 finals between the Lakers and the Bulls. Uh, given your understanding and research on Magic, I don't know, what do you make of that series? What do you make of both of their legacies as players? I mean, I think, you know, yeah, we've, we did a lot of research on magic, the Showtime Lakers. And once again, I've been an NBA fan my whole life. So I remember all of that. Max Borenstein is the showrunner on that show. Man, he wrote a great script. I directed the pilot and producer on it. And what's really striking to me is you just never see in any sport all-time great legends giving it up that nakedly for another guy. Like you see those interviews with magic and bird and they say he's the greatest player ever. And can you think of any example of that in any other sport? Like you're not going to hear like, you know, uh, Mike Singletary say, Oh yeah. Lawrence Taylor's the best linebacker ever. Like maybe you would, but like just to see, like to realize how good magic Johnson is, was, greatest point guard ever and just readily gives it up for Michael Jordan. Like Larry Bird, one of the nastiest competitors, a top 15 all-time player, immediately like, oh yeah, that was God dressed up as Michael Jordan. And and it's hard to like understand just how jarring it was when Michael Jordan came into the league, how you know, there had been this kind of thing behind the NBA. People forget that the NBA in the 80s when they were broadcasting on NBC – they didn't embrace the hip hop part of the NBA. They would still play songs like coming out of the bumper, like by like Bruce Hornsby in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> like John Tesh wrote the theme song, by the way, it's a catchy ass song, nothing against John Tesh, but like the idea that you're like, okay, we got the NBA. What's our first call. All right. Get John Tesh on the horn. Like that shows how disconnected the NBA was from 
African-American culture, hip-hop culture, music, streetball, all the great stuff that we were loving, still the NBA was playing a little game of separation with it, and Michael Jordan just ended that single-handedly. He came in, he had all the street moves, and he was a winner, and all of a sudden the marketing machine plugged into him, and you were just witnessing these things that really had been on video games and obscure bootleg VHS tapes, um, and suddenly it was in the NBA, and then slowly the NBA started getting it, and it just changed everything. Back then, you leave Philly to come to Chicago to join Second City, roughly 1990. At this point, Michael and the Bulls are getting assaulted by the Pistons uh, in the playoffs. You just immediately plug into all of Chicago's basketball scene at that time from our previous back and forth with each other. Uh, what were What were some of the highlights for you? You know, high school games and college and the Bulls and what have you. So, yeah, so I, we moved, I moved to Chicago. I had a buddy who went out there and didn't really move there so much to go to Second City, moved there to study with Del Close. Mm-hmm. My friend told me about this long form improv, this whole scene that only existed in Chicago. And it was one of those cases where my buddy was right. This guy, Rick Roman, he was 100% right. It was an amazing scene, unlike anywhere else in the world. And dove, you know, face first into that entire thing, but still was a hoops junkie and started clocking the Chicago basketball scene that was really incredible, specifically the public league. And we just, at one point, we're like, you know, we're broke. We're aspiring improvisers. I don't I think next to poet, that's like the lowest paying job on planet Earth. <laughs> Uh, next to do nothing and stand in one place, like aspiring <laughs> improvisers, the lowest paying job there is. And uh, so we started going to public league games because they're like basically free. You just walk in and you start watching these incredible players. And we got lucky that we were in Chicago when Kevin Garnett was playing at Farragut with Ronnie Fields. And I had read in like Street and Smith or whatever that Garnett was the number one player in the nation. I told my friends, like, we're going to these games. And some of them were on the South Side, which, you know, the South Side now is kind of famous for being like pretty, pretty violent and pretty tough. Uh, And it wasn't as bad back then, but it was still pretty bad. So we had to figure out a way to go to these games that we could walk into these neighborhoods without being bothered. So we we bought sport coats, uh, secondhand sport coats at the Goodwill and clipboards and we would walk in holding our clipboards with our sport coats and they would think people in the neighborhood would think we're scouts so no one would bug us and we got to see some of the most incredible basketball i mean i still think about some of the games we saw and the guy ronnie fields was really the star he was he was really like dominique wilkins and garnett was fabulous but ronnie fields was breathtaking he had like a 47 inch vertical leap and just every game you'd see six seven dunks you just couldn't believe it was, it was fabulous i'm thinking about garnett and i'm thinking about this week's episode with rodman the Vegas trip that Rodman takes. Amazing. Not only could that not happen now, but the the sort of Zen-like philosophy that Phil Jackson took to it to give him that long leash, um, it reminded me of a couple times where I've been directing on set and I've had an actor who's like a pain in the ass, but like is demanding a certain thing and you just kind of acquiesce so that <laughs> they do the thing that we need them to do. And I, and I really found that Phil Jackson in that moment felt like a filmmaker, like a director to me or a producer. A hundred percent. Yeah, I had the same feeling because, you know, when someone tells you 
like, this is it. Like, I'm going to go to war over this. The second you go to war, you've lost. Right. No one wins in a war. Right. So, yeah, he, I, I, I mean, it was making me laugh how Michael Jordan was talking like, if you let him go, he's not coming back. And sure enough, he doesn't come back because I was like, can't you get him like – can't you set up a craps table and a blackjack table in, in a club in, in Chicago and let him party in Chicago for like two days so at least he's around you? But uh, it seemed like he really wanted to go. I, the striking thing about that run for me was that it was Michael Jordan who walked into his hotel room. It wasn't like a guy from the Bulls or it wasn't even like a bench player like, you know, I don't know, Corey Blunt or someone. It was Jordan himself who came into the hotel room. And that, that kind of a little bit changed my perspective on Jordan. We all know Jordan has like the will to win and dedication and like a tough, tough guy and the greatest player ever. But the fact that he's the one who went up the elevator to pull him out of the room was like, man, this guy was committed. What did you make of him going into this movie and where do you stand on him right now halfway through the series? I think it's the best thing he could have done because I, I think he was so private for years that you were kind of putting together a portrait of him based on snippets and the snippets weren't great. It was that pretty rough hall of fame speech, although also appropriate in a way, because he's so competitive, but you know, it wasn't the best look, you know, you, everyone knows the, the Jesse Helms story, right? Republicans buy sneakers too. Right. Um, you know, we all remember Craig Hodges kind of calling him out for not, participating in the community enough, not giving back enough. And then Craig Hodge is basically getting blackballed from the NBA. So there weren't great stories around there. So to see him seated there and to see the emotion on his face and to see him respond, it's definitely great. It's definitely, you know, and also the old footage of him laughing and joking around, because I think the the image of him is like this scary crazy competitive guy became so dominant that you forget, no, he's a young guy. He's probably fun a lot of times. So uh, I really, really appreciate it. And I think it was very smart of him to do it. And um, I don't know, smart. I mean, that, that paints it too much as strategy, but you know, I liked when he cried when North Carolina lost. I thought, oh my God, you forget this guy. You know, they say it in the documentary when he cries after that first championship, the whole team was like, holy crap, I forgot he had feelings. And that's a little bit my response watching the miniseries. Right. Do you subscribe to any notion of the rumblings that, you know, with the ascension of LeBron in the GOAT debate that this, you know, kind of forced Michael's hand? I mean, here's the thing that I don't know if that's what led him to do it. Clearly something's changed with him. You know, he is remarried. Doesn't he have a, does he have a new kid? I can't remember, but I know he remarried. And, you know, people go through different phases in their life. They can be more closed off. They can be more emotional. Something seems to have changed. I thought the crying at the game was actually a really good sign. And I think the way he's behaving in the interviews, too, it just seems like he's a slightly different person. He's gotten older. He's got a different perspective on life. You know, as far as that debate between Jordan and LeBron, it's a fun, fun debate. I do think one of the things they've hit on it a little bit in the miniseries, but it's hugely important is just how forgotten it is that he was the greatest defensive player of his generation. Right. And that now there's a little more attention on defense. You talk about Kawhi Leonard and how much his defense means, Paul George, you know, these players. And the fact that Jordan wasn't only Jordan, but he was Kawhi Leonard defensively is the thing that I think is kind of forgotten about him. 
There's a great story I heard from Colin Quinn when I moved to New York in 95. And we were a couple of years after that, we were talking about, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was 95. So the last championship is 98, right? So it was during that series, mm-hmm. Quinn was friends with Chris Mullen. So it was during the run up to get out of the Eastern conference, they were playing the Pacers and Mullen called Colin Quinn. And he's like, Quinny, it's crazy. First time, first game, I get in the game and Jordan just tells me you're never touching the ball. And you know what, Quinn, I can't get the ball. He won't let me touch the ball. And if you look at that series, they like stop playing Chris Mullen, by the way, let's remember Chris Mullen hall of fame, basketball player in the NBA where he scored 27 a game. One of the greatest shooters of all time, dream teamer, Mm -hmm. dream teamer. And Jordan just goes, you're not touching the ball. And he's telling (laughs) Quinn just in a friend, like Quinn, he won't let me touch the ball. And like, so that side of Jordan is why I still lean towards Jordan as the goat. Probably also because I'm 52, but uh, you know, so I've got the memories, but uh, it is a fun debate. I don't know if Jordan came out of, you know, spoke out to kind of deal with that or not, uh, but it does seem like something's changed in him. Look, if anything comes out of this conversation, by the way, the fact that we now know that Colin Quinn and Chris Mullen are homies and, and tight with each other, that's that's all I needed. How great is that, by that's the amazing. way? Yeah. That, that is about as unlikely as a relationship between Madonna and Rodman. I mean, that is so... Well, they're both hardcore New Yorkers. Right. That's the reason. I mean, I think of Colin Quinn. I think in New York City, I think of Colin Quinn. Like, and Chris Mullen, too. He's got the accent. Like, mm-hmm. it, it actually, I think they grew up, like, in the same neighborhood or something. I think it goes back that far. And Quinn played basketball, too. He wasn't a bad basketball player back in the day. So I got to ask Quinn what the connection was, but I just love that. It's such a personal detail. Quinn, you won't let me touch the ball. I can't get the ball. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you, Adam. Have you, you know, we're we're talking about that Jordan mentality, and it's the thing they keep picking at in all these episodes about his need to be great, his drive to be great. Um, I'm curious, because you've been around athletes, you've been around great actors, great filmmakers. Have you seen that kind of similar mentality with someone in, in your career, in your life? What's crazy about it is, and what really strikes me, and I was actually thinking about it last night, is that usually when someone decides to answer questions that are inside themselves and to fill holes that are inside themselves or deal with wounds that are inside themselves in the external world, when someone says, I don't feel great about myself, I'm going to buy a bunch of sports cars and a mansion, it it I, in my life, I always, that ends poorly. And clearly what Michael Jordan did, I mean, he talks about his brother fighting him when he would beat his brother in a game. And the father is clearly a hard, tough guy, but also loved his kids. And clearly Jordan was like, I'm going to answer these questions about myself in the external world. And he did it. Like, <laughs> that's what's so crazy about it. Like, the story never ends well for Ahab. Like, right? Like, idiot. Don't go chase the whale around the planet. Like, just go and talk to your wife and, like, work out <laughs> the crap that your parents did to you. And, like, and it never ends well. And, and like, Michael Jordan created a story that was, like, Ahab, like, sailing back into port with, like, the husk of the whale and everyone cheering him. Like, that's what it feels like. Now... Obviously, the story didn't end with the games, and Jordan did struggle in a lot of ways and clearly kind of went through some phases in his life. But 
it is just it's remarkable it's a really well made series it really is the fil- the filmmaking the editing is so great and they really get to that better than i've ever seen it gotten to where when he's crying and holding that trophy and you see the reflection of the camera crew around him yeah uh, it has this ahab like quality to it it's amazing the only guy i've ever seen that maybe gets close to this is christian bale um but christian bale isn't driven by like a need to be number one or succeed he's driven by this need to go as deep as humanly possible into his characters he actually doesn't care about awards or any box office any of that stuff but that's the closest i've ever seen where like oh this guy this guy goes like because there's some great actors on the planet and a lot of people go deep into characters but i've never seen anyone like christian bale and it, it is much more from an artist's perspective, but that commitment to his characters, uh, it's the closest I've seen. Incredible. You, uh, you had mentioned uh, when we discussed Colin Quinn that you, you, know, you were a writer on SNL and you get there in 95. Now, MJ had hosted a classic season opener in 91, but after that, Rodman appears in May of 96 when you're there. So we're at peak Rodman at this point. He's on the Bulls. What was that like writing for him? Just the whole experience of Rodman at that point. Uh, Rodman. I'm trying to think if I ever crossed paths with Rodman. I don't think was he on the show when I was there. He did. He did a cold open uh, <laughs> with Norm Macdonald as as Bob Dole's running mate, and then he was basically plugging his book on Weekend Update. So, so you know that show's pretty big. That show has like right. twenty writers on it. And he always has a lot of cast, like 12, 13 cast members, including featured players. So Weekend Update's kind of its own world. And when I first started my first season, I was a staff writer, so I wasn't as connected to the whole show. Mm-hmm. And then I became head writer my second year. And at that point, then I was connected to the whole show. So I would have been much more front and center. The person that I got to experience when I was head writer was Shaquille O'Neal guest starred on a show and actually got to have a lot of interactions with him and wrote a sketch that was cut a dress with him and Farrell in it. And But Rodman, I don't think I ever crossed paths with him. I don't think I've ever met him. Was Shaq as funny as yes. people always say? Yes. Really funny. He walked in the room. So the sketch I wrote was called, it was a song called No One's Gonna Hurt My Little Man. And the premise was that everyone on the show was bullying Farrell kind of behind the scenes and people making fun of him. And he was getting ready for a sketch, Farrell, where he was wearing pajamas and Lorne and Daryl Hammond and stuff were mocking him. And Shaquille comes in and goes, leave him alone and stands up for him against the bullies and then picks Farrell. By the way, remember, Farrell is six, three and a half, almost six, four, picks him up in his arms and then they step in front of this green screen and suddenly there's clouds on it and he sings this whole song how no one's going to hurt his little man while he's cradling Will Ferrell. And Shaquille was hilarious, like so funny and truly a funny guy, like really playful and funny. And Ferrell and I were both like, this guy's awesome. I'm curious, with a with sketch like that, it is rather Shaquille specific you're, did you have that in your back pocket or is, you know, for an athlete to come write it that week and, and, you know, it's Shaquille specific. Wrote it that way. Yeah. Farrell and I sometimes would write sketches together where we would just say like one time Robert Duvall host or co-hosted and I said, we should write something for you and Duvall. And, and we were like, didn't have any ideas. I go, all I know is I want you to caress his cheek while you sing Lay Lady Lay by Bob Dylan to him. <laughs> 
And Farrell goes, good enough. And then we just thought of a way to make that happen. And it was that he was like a nurse in a hospital and somehow was supposed to like sponge bathe them and like to sing Lay, Lady, Lay to his patients when he would sponge bathe them. So that, that sketch actually got on. So the same thing with this one. I think I just told Farrell, I just said, all I would know is I want to see Shaquille O'Neal cradle you while wearing pajamas and, call, and sing a song called No One's Gonna Hurt My Little Man. And Farrell's like, I love it. Yeah. And that was it. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, that was specifically for Shaquille O'Neal. That one got cut at dress, so I don't know if it's out there anywhere that anyone can see it. But uh, so that one was never coming back unless Kevin Duckworth hosted the show, (laughs) (laughs) which was unlikely. Double O Duck. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, I was waiting for you to mention Kevin Duckworth. I was just hoping. It took this long. I really Uh, apologize. Unreal. And by the way, I can't not sing lay lady lay now in that manner when i sing that song uh it's just ingrained in my head because it's it's such a memorable <laughs> sketch lay lady lay it's wonderful so thank you for that and especially if you're sponge bathing someone you have to sing it oh without a doubt yeah i mean in, which occupies a lot of my time these days yeah obviously by the way uh scene dylan now uh twice uh he just won't do that song he just won't do it. He just, he's like, he's one of the only people who's like, I nope, just not going to do the hits. Not going to do it. I've seen him it. twice too and doesn't get anywhere near it. I mean, the legend is that he quit smoking for a year, right? I don't know if that's true. Yeah, yeah, for Nashville Skyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how his voice got like that. And then I've never heard him do any of them ever since. It's too bad. Oh, phenomenal songs. The thing is, though, now when you see Dylan, uh, to be fair, Sam, you might have actually been hearing the hits. You just not have realized that you were hearing the hits. He uh, just, that's a possibility. Yeah, he tours so much that he, what I think is he just gets so bored with, you know, playing the same songs every night that he just has to reform them into and, and his own liking now or to make it just new. Just to put out a question to us, what does he do in quarantine? Because that dude spends most of his time on the road. Well, he just released a 17-minute song about the assassination of JFK. So. And by the way, sounds a little bit like Nashville Skyline. When yeah. I heard it, I was like, wait a minute, did he quit smoking? Because mm-hmm. he does. The kind of clear voice is back a little bit on that song. I don't know, because if it's Willie Nelson, you know what he's doing, right? He's smoking pot. Right. noodling around with his guitar like that's what yeah. he's doing what does bob dylan do because i don't think bob dylan's a massive stoner oh you know what supposedly bob dylan's a, a music <laughs> geek though he has like a big record collection and knows a lot of different kinds of music so i bet you he's listening to music and looking for obscure albums online he's finally got the time to realphabetize his vinyl collection you know, <laughs> which is like yes <laughs> Thank God he got it in under the wire. I have a, a kind of like anthropological question, Adam. I'm wondering what you make of um, these people like Rodman, Garnett, these outsized personalities. Um, in some ways, they feel like a product of their environment. And even thinking about the bad boys and Isaiah and Lambeer, I'm wondering, as someone who follows NBA, how you feel about uh, the modern basketball player kind of having to be a little, I don't know, maybe a a little more mannered, a a little bit more careful about public image because of social media, because of the 24-hour news cycle. I almost think to be a great player in the NBA and to have a successful career, you have to be like a little bit less interesting of a person. There's no like Vegas trip that, that that's going to be publicized it's so true well i think it, it's like if you say something that's you know exciting or inflammatory or strange 
the blowback you used to get weighed about, you know, 24 pounds and now it weighs like 380 pounds. So it's just a matter of like allocation of energy. Like where do you put your energy? And if you say something crazy now, yeah, you just got to deal with it 10 times longer. So back in the day, you know, Ron Artest was one of my all time favorite players. And, and I, I'll never forget when he won the championship and he thanked his therapist. It was incredible. Still fairly early days in the internet, although the internet was developed. Um, Larry Johnson was another one. One of the great post-game interviews ever was when he started off with uh, some sheepish little bony uh, uh, sideline interviewer, and he says, "Assalamu alaikum," and then tells the guy they were playing like a bunch of freed slaves out there. And you just see the guy's eyes just absolutely stunned at the interview he's having. Um, yeah, you just don't see that as much anymore because that would just become ten times bigger. And who wants to deal with that for two weeks? Whereas back then, I think people talked to Larry Johnson about that for like two days and then it went away, you know? Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. I mean, social media did that to everything though, right? Like you yeah. got to just, you got to police yeah. yourself times 10 collapse of our, <laughs> the collapse of all of our major institutions also aided that because there's no actual justice from any of our institutions. So now you see this kind of online justice and you just got to be careful of that beast because it'll get you, you know? And so I think a combination of all those factors. Yeah, you're right. The personalities aren't as much. There's still a few though, right? I feel like there's still some guys. There's a few. Yeah. Like, but Dennis Rodman level, I mean, Dennis Rodman <laughs> put on a bridal gown and a wig and signed books in the middle of the loop in Chicago. It's still to this day, one of the more remarkable. Yeah. Oh my God. Incredible. Transcendent. I don't remember it, but when you won the best adapted screenplay for Big Short, did you thank your therapist? No joke. Could have. I, I have a great therapist and there's no question he helped, uh, not, not necessarily with anything to do specifically with that event, but staying, you know, relatively sane for the past 15 years, uh, I definitely could have, and God, I wish I had that. That would have been a real, or I should have thanked Ron Artest. There you go. What meta world peace maybe at that time? <laughs> oh my God. Next time, anytime there's a chance to thank anyone, I'm getting Ron Artest. Indeed. We, in, we need a, maybe a 10 part, maybe not a 10 part, but at least a multi-part documentary about the malice of the palace. I'm, I'm not aware of one, but I think that's... I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, one of the fun things I got to do off the big short is uh, uh, Michael Lewis is friends with Daryl Morey, the GM of the Rockets. So I kind of got to become friends with Daryl Morey. He's just a great guy. And uh, second time I hung out with Daryl Morey, he goes, uh, do you enjoy Ron Artest stories? <laughs> I was like, yes, I do, sir. Absolutely. I then proceeded to get like five or six just fantastic Ron Artest stories. And um, I think I can I say one out loud. I'm trying to think. I'm not betraying any trust. I think this is a well-known story, so I can say this. He was just giving an idea of like where Ron Artest came from, like the kind of neighborhood he grew up in was like it was a war zone and the kind of trauma he went through. And so they got Ron Artest on the rockets and Ron Artest was carrying around the, this wooden leg. And Daryl Moore is like, why are you carrying that around? And Ron Artest goes, this reminds me of where I'm from. I was at a pickup game once. And two guys started going at it. And the one guy said, if you don't back off, I'm going to jump over there and cut off your leg. And the guy didn't back off. So the guy did it, jumped over the table and cut off the guy's leg in front of like 400 people. Whoa. 
And Daryl Morey's like, oh that's my God. crazy. That didn't happen. That's insane. What's Ron Artest talking about? He's got this leg with him? like. And Morey then tells a friend, and the friend Googles it and goes, yeah, look, holds up the article. True story. And uh, you're like, so that's your ground floor on Artest. And you, and you really, when you understand that about him, he becomes even more of a hero. You realize the path that guy has gone down right. to get where he's at now, which, you know, now he's really into yoga. Like yoga is the big thing for him. And it's, he says, it keeps him sane. And I love Ron Artest. I do. I think I love Meta World Peace. Sorry. Uh, I just think his whole story is incredible. And, and I love when characters like Ricky Williams, um, oh wait, is that his name? The running back? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Similar story for me, like a guy who had a really traumatic childhood who just worked and worked on himself uh, to get better and better. And and uh, Metta World Peace, same thing. I just love stories like that. I think I can speak on behalf of NBA and basketball fans everywhere and just humanity that if you ever decide to sit down with Daryl Morey and do a podcast about just run our tests slash Metta World Peace stories, oh. we are all in. OK, that that that. Please make that happen. I mean, the only reason I wouldn't do it is because I just want to listen to it. <laughs> I would try and make someone else do that with Daryl Morey so I can just binge listen to that in my car. Yeah, he should do a podcast. He has so many great stories and he's so funny and so smart. Please. <laughs> well, I know we have to go in a second, so we got a couple things left. Um, I'll let David ask one. I know he's got one. First off, do we have NBA? What's your prediction? Are we going to get any NBA back? And who will be the champion? And who would have been the champion if we don't get it? So uh, I do think, I think you're starting to see a little change of late. Thank God the numbers are going down a little Mm bit. Uh, and no way to get sleepy or, you know, passive about this thing. Cause it's a, you know, it's a pandemic. It could spike up in a, in a day or two, but you are starting to see this social distancing working. So I do think that's going to give us some room to start planning for how we can at least half come out into the sunlight. And I do think they're going to do like some sort of tournament for the NBA playoffs. I have no inside knowledge on this. I'm just just the game of if I'm the commissioner and, and, you know, it's looking like maybe a month from now, you could start doing some controlled events. If you're really smart about it, I do think they're going to do some kind of tournament. I think it would be weird though, because all the players haven't played. You're kind of like just jumping into a certain chemistry of like these series, or maybe they'll do them as three game series. Cause you can't do the full seven. Right. Uh, who would have won if the season had continued? I almost think that answers more fun, right? Right. Obviously, you have the whole thing of injuries. Uh, I was rooting for the Rockets this year. I just really, obviously, love Daryl Morey. Um, love that team. I think they're a blast. I think it would have been they would have been hard pressed to win it all. I think the Lakers were going to win it all. I do. Hmm. I think uh, I think the Bucks had some issues. I think they're a great team, but I think they could. I, I think the Lakers really spelled them in a way, kind of like. How did anyone, you know, beat Marvin Hagler? Well, Sugar Ray Leonard could beat Marvin Hagler, and I think that was the case with the Bucks. I think the the Lakers kind of had him. I think uh, LeBron was peaking at the right moment. Um, I think Anthony Davis is jaw dropping. I just think everything was coming together for them, and it's really kind of a shame because this would have been a great season for them. I always felt like the Clippers had more injuries and more health problems than they were letting on. I think Kawhi Leonard, when I heard he had an issue with his patella tendon, I'm like, patella tendon's no joke. Like that's 
that and the Achilles are two things that can end careers. And I didn't think his career was going to end. I just mean that I don't know if he was going to get to be 100%. Uh, loosely and lazily, I would have gone with the Lakers. I also think the Celtics were looming on the horizon, though. Those young guys were really starting to gel. And could there have been a big upset out of the East? And could the Celtics come out of the East? Uh, I think it was a possibility. Yeah. Uh, last question here for you. Um, when you talk about Michael Jordan to your children, how do you describe him? I, I just, uh, the thing I always try and whatever I tell my kids about anything is I always just remind them of the context because you could just hear like a Sex Pistols song and be like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. You have to go, no, no, no. Like you have to imagine John Denver being played on the radio 40 times a day. <laughs> like you have to, like to really understand the Sex Pistols, you've got to imagine like prog rock getting popular. Like, and then you think of the Sex Pistols. And that's what I try and do with Jordan is whenever I talk to anyone who's like younger or wasn't around, I go, you just have to imagine the context. You have to imagine that like Sidney Moncrief, a great player, but here's how he played. Like, and then you'll say like his lockdown defender, he could hit a jump shot, would drive strong to the hole. And then a guy comes around who, when you first watch him, it does look like he's hanging in the air, like he's breaking the rules of gravity. The other guy I always talk about too is Dominic Wilkins and how jaw dropping that was watching him for the first time. It wasn't just Jordan, Dominic Wilkins. It's he's a little bit lost to time as well. Um, but the best in-game dunker I've ever seen in my entire life is Dominique Wilkins. And to get to see Jordan and Dominique and Bird and Magic and to see all these players percolating around the same time and Charles Barkley uh, and when Shaquille O'Neal came into the league, it's just there's nothing more fun than when these guys enter the league for the first time and you just feel a different energy when you watch the game. It's kind of like Patrick Mahomes in the NFL, like when that guy first started right. really humming you're like, oh, I haven't seen this. This is a totally different energy. The guy's doing no-look passes. The guy can throw every ball there is, and he looks like he's 16 years old. And and that was Jordan. Jordan was all of that plus like two extra notches of I've never seen this before. Wow. So for you, the Lakers and Celtics were essentially the captain and Daniel and Jordan and Dominique were the clash and the Sex Pistols. I don't know if you could ever call the Lakers Captain Steel. I mean, that Showtime Lakers, they were the first version of that. They were the first time kind of basketball popped into the fifth gear and you heard the engine make a sound you hadn't heard before. Uh, the way Magic Johnson passed the basketball, that was like a transcendent thing as well. And Bird, too. The way both those guys passed the ball and the way Bird could shoot it. Now, they, they definitely were big. And Dr. J was big, too. I mean, each of these players had their own little thing. Thing they contributed, but the Jordan jump felt like it skipped a connective link, like right. went from, it felt like you didn't go from A to B, you went from like A to like G when you went to Jordan. And it was, once again, it was that street ball thing, like, you know, his tongue was hanging out. Now he's like an institution, but like when he came around, it was like, it felt, it did feel more punk rock and the tongue wagging and him floating in the air and switching hands and those vicious dunks mixed with the competition, mixed with the cool fashion that went with it. Um, but yeah, no, magic was always cool too, man. There's no question about it. Celtics were a little more old school because they had McHale and Parrish and some old school type players. So right. watching Jordan kind of dice them up was awfully fun. Would you ever make a Jordan Bulls biopic? 
I don't think you need to after this series. I think it's so good. But what I, I mean, we had a lot of fun making that pilot for that Lakers show. Um, and I really did feel like, oh, there's, there's a lot more you can do with these sports stories. I mean, we shot it on film. We mixed mediums for it. The way we cut it with my editor, Hank Corwin, like it's, it's really unusual and interesting. And after that experience, I did feel like there's some other sports stories you could do. Definitely uh, movies and limited series. Um, and the NBA is, is hardly tapped at all. There's so many great stories in the NBA. Well, Adam McKay, thank you so much for your time, uh, for joining us on here, talking about the documentary and uh, for just talking about hoops. My absolute pleasure. When I uh, when I got your guy's message, I was like, I can't think of one reason I wouldn't want to do this. And the only trick is I could probably talk for four hours, as you could tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have a hankering for coming back, you know, the, the door is always open. My new favorite guy, by the way, we're talking about those players who change rhythm on the game. <laughs> and I was a little disappointed by his rookie year, but I still stand by it as John ja Morant. I love John ja Morant. <laughs> Pretty crazy, crazy, though. Zion's definitely crazy, too. And that's a different mm -hmm. energy than I've ever seen on the court. But, man, do I love John ja Morant. I just can't wait yeah. to see where he goes and what he does. <laughs> How about it? Oh, yeah. heartbreaking. Um, well, once again, thanks for having me on and uh, really fun talking with you. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Adam. All right, be well. Thank you, Adam. Take care. So long. Well, there you have it. An incredible interview with writer-director Adam McKay. Wow. Sam, thoughts? Just a joy. I mean, we spoke to him for 45 minutes to an hour. Could have easily gone on for another three. We may have to have him back on if he'll do it yeah. uh, at the end of the series. Absolutely. The stories that he had and, and the, you know, whether it be Colin Quinn, Chris Mullen, the whole bit. Metal World Peace, just for the ages. Uh, we want to thank uh, Stacey Robert Steele, as well as Abby Kotler for helping us to make this happen. I'd also like to thank our wonderful editors, Meg Chen Sun and Melissa Zhuang. Without them, this show would not be possible. If you want to hear more of The Last Dance After Show, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. We also have a website at thelastdanceaftershow.captivate.fm. We'd also like to thank the good people at Feeding America. You can go to their website at www.feedingamerica.org, and any and all donations are greatly appreciated. Sam, who do we have coming up next week? We have uh, sports writer Sam Smith, not to be confused with the musician Sam Smith. He was a beat reporter during the halcyon days of the Bulls, the Chicago Tribune. He also wrote the book, The Jordan Rules. Very excited for this one. He's featured prominently in episodes five and six, as you'll see. So uh, we're honored to have him. Yeah, that's going to be a really great interview. I really am looking forward to that because he knows his history. And obviously he's all over the dock and to pick his brain is going to be fun. We're going to have to rise to the occasion. I think we're going to be able to manage. Hopefully we don't pull a Craig Elo. Oh, thank God for making that reference. You're welcome for that. David, thank you so much for doing it. Thank you, Sam. And we will see you guys next week. Be safe. Wash your hands thoroughly. Take care. Bye-bye.